0: I want to give a, uh, I'm going to read a quote, and I want to give a trigger warning if you've had someone in your life, a loved one maybe, who uh, has taken their own life. I just want to make you aware that there will be references to suicide at least twice in this sermon. But I want to begin by a quote from uh, an Algerian philosopher named Albert Camus, who uh, died in the 1950s, so he's in the 20th century here. And he opens one of his famous books called Myth of Sisyphus this way. He opens his book on philosophy this way. He says this, There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest, whether or not the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or twelve categories, comes afterward. These are games. One must first answer that question of suicide. And Camus was on to something that many of us in our society want to ignore, which is the question that all of us have to answer at some point or another which is, is this life worth living? Karl Marx, as a lot of you may know, uh, famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And I would contend that today we have our own truly opiate of the masses, which is, which is this idea of ignorance being bliss. We don't want to think about hard questions. They're uncomfortable. They're distressing. They're disruptive. And so we want to pretend like, like they're not there. There are two things that society tells us never to speak about. Religion and politics. Things that deal with questions of sort of highest importance, we might say. Religion, of course, being the higher. We have obsessions in our culture with trivialities that distract us with entertainment just so we can do anything to intoxicate ourselves to not have to think about life's ultimate questions. But Camus makes the case here I think we can at least agree with him on this, that eventually these questions are unavoidable. Death awaits all of us. And he raises a question, whether you die at the age of 12 or you die at the age of 85, in the span of of a universe that exists for, for quite a long time, what difference does that really make? I'm just a blip on the radar according to his worldview. Why not end it right now, if death will wipe Everything in my life to meaninglessness. And the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe, answers similar questions and wrestles with similar subjects, although as we'll see, provides a very different answer. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at, begin by looking at the method of the book. We begin a new sermon series this morning that we're called Chasing Joy in a Messed Up World, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this sermon here, we are seeking to do an introduction to the book and overview the whole book. I want us to begin, then, first, by looking at the method that the book uses to convey its message. The first thing is that, uh, is that we see what I see as at least two voices in the book. There are other ways of viewing this. Um, you could potentially view this as one voice speaking of himself in the third person, but as I see it... It appears to be two voices speaking in the book. And you see it this way in verse 1, chapter 1. You have someone saying, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then quoting this preacher, Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. And so what we have, as far as I see here, is there's sort of what we might call a narrator who is going to introduce to us the words of the preacher that will take up the bulk of the book. If you look at chapter 7, 7 verse 27, most of the book is the words of the preacher, so we almost kind of forget that there was a narrator to begin with. But in 727, he pops through again. He says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. And we're reminded that there's someone quoting the preacher. And then the bulk of this comes in chapter 12 at the conclusion. Chapter 12 at the conclusion, again, just as the book began in, uh, in chapter 1, Vanities of Vanities, so in chapter 12 verse 8, again, Vanities of Vanities says the preacher, all is vanities. The narrator has introduced the preacher's thesis, and at the end he reminds us of that thesis, top and tail. And he talks about the preacher, he tells us how to assess him, being wise. The preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, Up and uprightly he wrote words of truth, etc. One of the questions you might ask is, why, does the book, why is the book framed this way? Why does the book sort of have these two voices? And I actually think you might think of it similar to how Dan occasionally does his first-person sermons, um, when Dan does a first-person sermon, as sometimes you know, he'll sort of introduce it, and then he enters the character, uh, a character of in the story itself. So he did, a story, he did the account of Paul on the sea, and he preached a sermon from the perspective of a sailor, I think it was, or a soldier, on the boat. Or you might think of it this way. If I was to tell you about the slave trade and to teach a lesson on the slave trade, I could tell you all these different facts about the boats that were used, the amount of people, how people were abducted, what it w- looked like for them to be sold, the conditions, all that stuff. I could tell you the facts. What we might call didactic. I'm teaching you. But it's a totally different experience if I were to tell you about the slave trade from the perspective of a boy who is kidnapped from Africa and I tell you about his experience being one of those people just jammed together as sardines in the bottom of a boat, and what it was like for him emotionally to experience being sold to a plantation. That first-person experience has a totally different effect. And I think the book of Ecclesiastes, in many ways, is helping us not just to teach us its message, but to help us enter into its message and learn from someone's experience. The preacher, of course, as many of us are probably familiar with, is uh, is someone that very much looks like Solomon. Either it very much is Solomon, or at, at very least, it's someone who's depicted as Solomon-like. It's interesting that the book never actually identifies him as Solomon using that name, but there are a lot of things that lend itself to why we see it at least associated with Solomon, if not Solomon. You have the language in chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 12, of him being the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then the portrait we get throughout the book is that he has great power, wealth, access, and he even says that he has unprecedented wisdom above all those who came before, which of course fits the wisdom of Solomon. And if you look at chapter 2 verse 12, one of the reasons this is so important to understand is, well, let's read chapter 2 verse 12. The preacher says this, he says, "...so I turn to consider wisdom..." and madness and folly, and then here's the key phrase. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already be do- been done. In other words, by the fact that is, it is Solomon or a Solomon-like figure who goes on this quest, we see that it's an airtight quest. Let me explain it this way. If I were to tell you Myself, I said, I went out and tried to find what was good for us to pursue in life. I went after money, I went after women, I went after all the learning I could get, I went after uh, everything that I could find in this life. Let me tell you guys, it all came up empty. Someone out there, the person who's a little bit skeptical, would say, well, sure, Kirk, but you don't have a lot of money. You're not that good looking, you're not that smart, so the only reason you didn't succeed is because you didn't have access. Anne and I watched this documentary on Bill Gates, but what if someone like Bill Gates, who's very smart and very educated and has these, what if he was to do the search? Certainly he would succeed. It's because of your limitations, Kirk. And the book of Ecclesiastes holds up the Solomon figure and says, Nah. This is an airtight case. If he can't do it, no one can. His, his, his method then, as we look at the book, is one of observation. It's almost like he's doing a scientific empirical study. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 13, or 12 and 13, chapter 1, 12 and 13, we see the project that he's on. He outlines what this book is going to be. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He's searching. He wants to see what's done under heaven. His aim, we see, is in chapter 2, verse 3. He said, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart so guiding within me, and how to lay hold on folly, notice this, till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life, he wants to know what, what is good what, what should we be doing what 's worthwhile, what matters, and then you see throughout the book he there 's this high uh, density of searching and looking sort of language, so you see you see in chapter one verse, chapter two, verse one, I said to my heart, "Come now, I will test you with." Pleasure, Or in verse 12, so I t- turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. Chapter 3, verse 16, it says, moreover, I saw under the sun. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, I saw the oppression. Verse 7, I saw the vanity under the sun, etc. This is very much... A a, a empirical, observational project. He's looking at life. He's investigating things. And therefore, his conclusions are based on experience. You might put it this way. Experience is learning from your mistakes. Wisdom is learning from the mistakes of others. Experience is learning from your own mistakes. And wisdom is learning from the mistakes of others. And the book of Ecclesiastes would have us to learn from his experience. The perspective, as you may have noticed, that the preacher takes, is this phrase that we get of under the sun or under heaven. There's a particular perspective that he has as he does this search. And under the sun, under heaven probably means um, little more than sort of life on earth life as we see it life as we know it but as you read through the book you see that part of this under the sun under heaven sort of perspective is it has a element of limitation to it it has an element of it's 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 a limited perspective Um, As some of you may know me, or even if you don't, you can see I'm wearing glasses, but as some of you may know me, I have horrific eyesight. Like, horrible. And so if I take off my eyes, you guys are just an absolute blur right now. I wouldn't be able to make out any of you who you are, I can't see anything in front of me. Now, on the one hand, what I see, it's not a hallucination. What I see is true. It's real. This isn't made up. It's just limited. It's blurry. It's not fully clear and that's the sort of perspective i think that the book of ecclesia the book of the preacher here in the book of ecclesiastes has he's looking at life under the sun as we see it and it's he, he talks about life truly as we see it but there's some bit of limitation in many ways it's like today his perspective is like those today who embrace a secular perspective one that doesn't fully take into consideration god into the equation. And why does he do this? He does this intentionally because he wants to lead us to the proper conclusion. And this has to do with the fact that the book is what we call wisdom literature. There are different types of writing in the Bible, and this is a book of Ecclesiastes comes in what we call wisdom literature. And as wisdom literature, particularly this type of wisdom literature... It, it wants to bring us into the very experience of wrestling with the complexities and even the apparent contradictions and absurdities of life. It wants to bring us into that experience. It wants, to, it wants us to, to, to be able to see what it's like if we were to pursue pleasure as an ultimate and find it as a dead end, or pursue learning and find that as a dead end. It wants to bring us to a bunch of dead ends, so it might ultimately lead us to a better answer. It's going to deconstruct before it reconstructs. And so we read a book like Ecclesiastes differently than we would something like didactic literature. Okay, What I mean by that is something that's more straightforward, um, like one of Paul's epistles, where it just tells us, sort of, this is the doctrine. Rather, we read it more like Job. It's not as straightforward. You don't take everything in Job straightforward. Because why? There's, there's people, some of Job's friends, that are speaking to him that don't always get it right. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a little bit more complicated like that. It has us enter into the complexity. The book of Ecclesiastes wants to convince us, not by just telling us what is the case, but by causing us to enter in by recreating the experience for us. By recreating the experience that the preacher underwent for us. And so it has a different sort of effect than if we were to read didactic, epistle, or something like that. Uh, One author uh, named David Gibson states this quite well. He says this, he says, Part of the brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers and eludes our comprehension. How? How does it teach us that? By being itself elusive and perplexing. Is there a better way to explain how life can leave you scratching your head than by writing a book that leaves you doing the same? The message of the book of Ecclesiastes is mirrored in the effect of the book. And so we move now to the message of the book. We looked at the message or the method. Now let's look at the message. And one of the things that uh, may be a helpful illustration for you as you read your Bible is if you're uh, someone who's listened to classical music before, um, there is this thing in classical music where you could have a song that's eight minutes long or so, and oftentimes what happens is you kind of go down these paths where all of a sudden there's a little tune here, and there's a little tune here, but it always sort of swings back to what we might call the chorus or the primary melody. And oftentimes in books of the Bible, there's a lot of stuff going on. But what we want to pay attention to is what we might call that melodic line. That thing that ties it all together. Even the parts that weave over here and weave over there, there's something that ties it all together. And what we might say in the book of Ecclesiastes, the chorus of this song is clearly vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is Vanity, repeated all throughout the book. And this word vanity literally just means vapor. The word means vapor. As we see how it's used in the book as a, as a metaphor, in other words, if you look at chapter one, verse, uh, verse two and three with me, I think we can see how the book, how the word is used. He says, vanities of vanities, all is vanity, verse three, And then here he goes on to unpack, I think, what he means by vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, vanity is a good translation. It's the idea of futility, nothing gained. You're not able to grab a hold of it. You're not able to get something of substance. Your efforts are futile. They don't produce anything. They don't amount to anything substantial. Or if you look at chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And then there's this phrase that comes afterward that helps us understand what he means, a phrase that he uses throughout the book, a striving after wind. A striving after wind. You can't grab onto onto, onto wind. It will slip right through your fingers, in other words. One, good luck chasing wind. And even if you were to get it, it goes right through your fingers. That's the idea of vanity. We're trying to grab onto something, and it slips right through. It's vapor. It's gone. Towards the second half of the book, there's an added element of this idea of like life being an enigma. We're not able to gain understanding of the things in this life. And throughout the book, he he touches on a whole host of themes and subject matters. He looks at pleasure and indulgence, and he finds the answer to those things is vanity. He looks at work, toil, and achievement. Those things are vanity. He looks at money and wealth. Those things are vanity. Wisdom, learning, and knowledge, vanity. He looks for justice and equity. What he finds is injustice, suffering, and oppression, vanity. He looks for human endeavor and and our ability to plan, scheme. What he finds is foibles, that life is uncontrollable. He looks for a discernible order and meaning to time, and he finds change and unknowability, that fact that only God knows. I I recently was uh, buying a new computer, and one of the salespersons said, you got to future-proof your product. You've got to future-proof it. You've got to get good enough hardware so that as technology advances, it doesn't get outdated. And how many of us want to future-proof our lives? But we're not able to. We're not in control, ultimately, of our destiny. Life often goes the way we don't expect. He looks at life, and he finds that it always, always ends in death. The ultimate vanitizer. Even if any of those other things you might say, well, well, what about this or what about that? Ultimately, death is the final word. Death is the thing that puts a vanity stamp on all other vanities. Leo Tolstoy, a Russian philosopher, said this. He said, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, every person. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And so if we were to bring back our illustration of of, of the idea of a a classical music piece, a song, a melodic line, normally the chorus is the point of a song, right? Right? But in the book of Ecclesiastes, this chorus of vanity, I would argue, is actually not the final point, but is meant to lead us to a post-chorus. It's meant to lead us to a bridge. We might think of it this way, as oftentimes we want people to feel the weight of the law in order to point them to the gospel. So here, the book wants wants to show us the dead end of all these things that we might look forward to in ultimate resolution even the language of under the sun shows that the ultimate answer must come then from outside of those parameters and so we get what we call what i what i might call these above the sun moments these above the sun moments these glimpses of the preacher getting us ready for the ultimate conclusion sometimes when you're on a bus if there's only standing room there's normally it's something that you can hang on to And what I picture is I picture the preacher going through life and everything is vanity. He bumps into a wall here, he bumps into a wall there. It's like an earthquake is happening in this dark room and he's groping and he can't figure out where to go. And all of a sudden he's able to grab a cord that kind of stabilizes him in the midst of it all. And that's what these moments are throughout the book. These stabilizing moments where he shows us a glimpse into the real answer that we're going towards. Look at some of these with me. We'll just sample some of these. In chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, we get these nothing better statements. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, this is God's gift to man. Or look at chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Or finally, we might look at chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy... For man is nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Part of what I think he's saying here is this. Is that when we look to all of these things that he's been searching across the book, when we look to these things as our ultimate, as that thing that will that will give us Full meaning in life. Of, of ultimate worth. What we're doing is we're confusing the gift with the giver. And ultimately we're looking for these things that truly are gifts by looking to them as the giver. We're looking for them to do something that they were never created to do. And it's only going to leave us frustrated. It's only going to leave us, as he says throughout the book, with this sense of vexation that's not what they were created to be but when we embrace god as the ultimate giver and we come under the fear of god we're actually able to enjoy these things for what they are gifts from god we're actually now free rather than being vexed by these things for looking in them for something that they can never provide us ultimate meaning ultimate value We're actually enabled, when we understand what they truly are, gifts and not the giver, we're actually enabled to enjoy them for what they are. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says in Weight of Glory, he says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered to us, Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Or as Augustine said in his famous book, The Confessions, he says, talking about when he was a non-believer searching for for meaning and and what he believed was true, he said, God, you are always with me, get this, mercifully punishing me touching with a bitter taste all my illicit pleasures. Your intention was that I should discover it to be in nothing except you. Or earlier in the book, as he famously said, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And that's why we've titled this series, Chasing Joy in a Messed-Up World. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is ultimately after our joy, that we would find joy in this life. You see, the final answer of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't undo the reality of, of what it describes as vanity. Sometimes I think we can fall prey to that. That's a common idea of Ecclesiastes. Like, you don't have God, and so everything is kind of vanity. But when you have God, it's no longer vanity. But the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't wipe away the vanity. Like, life is messed up. We live in a fallen world. Sin is here. Death is here. Things happen that shouldn't happen. It doesn't undo that. Rather, what it does is it gives us a reorientation in the midst of it. If you've ever seen one of those artists who, they paint something live, and you watch them, maybe they're painting with their fingers, and they're doing all this stuff, and you're wondering, like, what on earth are they painting? And then at the end, they flip the painting around, and you go, oh, that's what it was. The painting didn't change. The ink is still everywhere where it was, the paint. But what happened? There's a re perspectiving, we might say, a reorienting a way of looking at the world anew. And so it tells us don't make the gift into the giver. It tells us to the person who has, or that when we experience plenty, we don't put our stock in those things. But because we don't put our stock in those things, even when we don't have, even when we face hardship, because our hope was never in those things, we're able to exemplify a godly contentment. As Paul would say, "a a, we're joyful even as we're sorrowful, because those aren't our hope. We embrace our limitations, that I can't know everything, I can't figure everything out, The course that my life takes, the way things turn, so much of it is outside of my control. And so I put an end to the impossible attempt to try to grab hold of those things, which are ultimately only going to leave me with vexation. Rather, as one who fears God, I entrust myself to Him. And I enjoy the gift of life for what it is. We embrace our mortality. That I'm going to die someday. And that's okay, because I don't put my stock in the things of this life that death is ultimately going to wipe clean. Knowing this, embracing this life for what it is, it frees me from the vexation of putting my hope in false things. So when Ecclesiastes it stamps these things with vanity, notice, it doesn't dismiss all of these things. Altogether, it doesn't, it doesn't say that wisdom doesn't matter or pleasure has no good or money has no good, etc. But what it does is it rightly orients us to be able to receive these things for what they are. And so it oftentimes commends these things, rightly pursued. The result is this, get this, this is huge. In an incredibly unexpected way, the message that all is vanity is actually incredibly good news for us. It becomes one of the most liberating messages that we need to hear. Because I'm freed from living life. I'm freed from living for those things that are ultimately dead ends. You might put it this way. Coming to grips with the vanity of everything enables and frees me to step off the treadmill of this gainless, unachievable pursuit of those things that only get me vexation. Coming to grips with the vanity of everything enables me and frees me to step off the treadmill of this gainless pursuit. And so I embrace life for what it is. I I enjoy God and the gifts, the gifts that He allows me to experience day by day rather than trying to make life out into what I wish it were but unable to control. And the ultimate answer as we get to the final Chapter of the book is that fearing God is the way we experience this joy-producing reorientation in the midst of a messed up world. Fearing God is the way we ultimately will experience this joy-producing reorientation. If you turn to chapter 12, the book of Ecclesiastes has wanted us to feel the otherwise inescapable distress and emptiness of it all for this reason in order to give us an appetite for and to set up a compelling attractiveness of a God-fearing life. Look at chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, where the narrator tells us the conclusion of everything. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so we go from nothing matters, everything is vanity, to this. Everything matters. Fearing God is the whole duty of man. God will bring everything into judgment, from nothing matters to everything matters. It casts a whole new hue to everything that we read before. We look at things now. We look at life. Not trapped in the present, but invaded by a perspective of the end and the fact that God will eventually bring all things to judgment. We live life, as we might say, looking backwards. It's not until we learn how to die that we will learn how to live. And ultimately, the book of Ecclesiastes... ...finds its resolution in Christ. This theme of futility ultimately points forward to what Christ has done. So in Romans 8, in Romans 8, Paul talks about how creation was subjected to futility. The same word that in the Greek was used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes for vanity. Creation, because of the fall, under the curse, was subjected to futility... In many ways we might say the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom in a fallen world. The vanity that the book of Ecclesiastes is talking about is vanity that's produced by the curse of this world. That things don't work the way they should. But what Paul says in Romans 8 is that Christ, in taking that curse upon himself, Galatians 3, in raising from the dead and defeating death the ultimate vanitizer, Christ is our ultimate hope for release. ...from this vanity. And so in 1 Corinthians 15... ...when Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ... ...this defeat of death... ...the ultimate vanitizer... ...Paul concludes that chapter... ...saying when, when we will share in Jesus' resurrection... ...He was raised so we will be raised... ...what does Paul say to conclude that chapter... ...1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. ...he says this... ...therefore my beloved brothers... ...because of the resurrection of Christ... ...be steadfast and movable... ...always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We have our hope in Christ, and he is the answer to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, If I can have the worship team come forward, I'll close us with these uh, three categories. As we enter into the book of Ecclesiastes, I want us to think this way. Why do we need this book? Why is it good for our soul? Why is it good for our church? And we can think of it, we've already sort of applied this book as we've gone through, but I want you to maybe, I want to give you like three categories of people that you might think of. The one is the non-believer. This book is an incredible argument for the Christian faith. It's an incredible argument against all other belief systems. We might say an apologetic, a defense of our faith. A few weeks ago, we looked in our small groups at the New City Catechism, question one, what is our only hope in life and death? And someone raised, I think it was Brent, raised the idea of what would this look like to bring to a non-believer? To the non-believer, what is your only hope in life and death? Do you have an answer that the book of Ecclesiastes does not crush? It points us to the gospel. It's a great tool for using with the non-believer. And it also, in that way, builds up our own faith. The second category, I would say, is similarly to the believer who is deluded by these false hopes. As John Piper famously says, the book of Ecclesiastes would come in and say, Don't waste your life. It's going to obliterate your delusions. Let the book of Ecclesiastes wake you up from these things. But the final category, I would say, is to the believer who is maybe feeling vexed and frustrated in life and tired. There's an agony. This book can give us rest. If we embrace that message, it calls for us to even find joy. And as we move now to the Lord's Supper, what we'll do is this is a time for us to to focus on Christ I want us this morning as we partake in the Lord's Supper that this would be a time for us to fix our eyes directly on Christ who is our ultimate hope in this sin-cursed world who is the ultimate answer for the vanity all around us and is our current joy.